Perhaps you've heard the expression before, I assume that you have, from your mouth to God's ears. It's an expression you've probably heard, maybe you've said it at some point. Maybe you've been surprised when someone said it to you. You said something hopeful to someone, and in response, they said, from your mouth to God's ears. Now, when that expression is communicated, it's often a way of indicating that the addressee, the person who's being spoken to, is desirous that the addresser, that their words would be heard by God and would come to pass. Now, sometimes though not necessarily all the time, it's said in a kind of whimsical way, in a kind of shot-in-the-dark sort of way, in which a person is saying, oh, may it be from your mouth to God's ears. It's a kind of, you know, a proverbial hoping against hope that maybe the thing that you said will be heard by some higher power and it will come to pass. It's worth noting that when we as Christians hear that expression, from your mouth to God's ears, we should be reminded that it is an ever-present, everyday reality for the people of God. Our words do, if you will, go from our mouths to God's ears. They travel faster than the speed of light, you could say. They travel on a network that is faster than the highest speed internet in the world. It makes the highest speed internet in the world look slow moving in comparison. And the network on which they run is, if you will, divine grace. And it can never be interrupted. What a great and glorious grace. Uninterruptible communication with the living God. Now, if you were to go on, you could say that you know, imagery for divine access, that's God's access to our prayers, that imagery could be multiplied. You could say our prayers not only go from, God's, from our mouth to God's ears, but they go from our heart to God's throne. They go from our mind to His holy temple, as it were. But when you think of that kind of language, mouth to ears, it's either implicitly or in the case of Psalm 18, explicitly sometimes communicated in Scripture. Look back at Psalm 18, verse 6. David says, I called upon the Lord, or Yahweh, and cried out to my God. And then he goes on and he says, my cry came before Him even to His ears. That's the kind of language that David is using. It's a reality for the people of God. I called, I cried, and you know where the call and the cry went? It went right to God's ears. As we'll see in the text before us, though, we ought not only marvel at the access that we have to God's ear, we ought to also marvel at the divine reaction to the cries of His people. If you want a longer example of that, look in the book of Exodus, for instance. God hears the cries of His people, the cries of the children of Israel, and just watch what unfolds to Pharaoh and Egypt subsequently. He heard their cries, and there came an onslaught upon Egypt to loosen the grip of Pharaoh so that His people might be released. We ought to marvel at the divine reaction that is seen in this psalm to prayer. If you're connecting this psalm rightly, if you're connecting verses 7 through 19 with what came before it, most immediately verse 6, then you kind of see the picture that's being painted here is something like this. There is a sense in which prayer is a kind of divinely appointed provocateur, a gracious provoking agent used by the sovereign God of heaven to bring about help or deliverance for His people. So if you imagine that God is disinterested in the prayers of His people, 
you use your imagination wrongly. I mean, you can go to texts like Proverbs 15.8 and be reminded that the prayers of the upright are his delight. You can go to a text like in James chapter 5 where you are reminded that the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man, and that would include women as well, that it avails much. And you see a little bit of how it avails in this psalm. So remember, don't disconnect what we're going to see in verses 7 through 19 with what you just heard in verse 6. David called, his cry went to God's ears. Prayer was, if you will, a sovereignly, divinely appointed provocateur for what we see unfold in the verses that follow. If we lack the perspective provided in this psalm, we forfeit, I think, a truly helpful and needed perspective to our praying. You know, sometimes when it comes to prayer, I think we could be tempted to think, or at least feel, or at least act like God is indifferent Because He's sovereign and omniscient and He knows everything and nothing we're going to say surprises Him, we can lose sight of the fact that He is well interested in the cries of His people. And indifference, as it has been said, is not an attribute of God. (laughs) Well, as we make our way into the text, quick reminders. You look back at verse 1. In verse 1, we saw David declare his love for the Lord. In verses one, second half, in verse 2, we saw David identify God through a series of ascriptions coupled with possessive pronouns. So that was verse 1 and verse 2. And we recall the paradigm of prayer and deliverance in verse 3. David's basically saying, this is how it's worked in my life. I have called and God has answered. He also depicts how close he came to death's door in verses 4 and 5. And then what he did in his distress, verse 6, he cried out to the God who hears the cries of his people. That brings us to verses 7 through 19. Today, to verses 7 through 11. Now, I want you to know, David is going to use poetic language. He's going to use metaphoric language. But as we're going to see, it's not just strictly poetic and metaphoric language that is disconnected from biblical history. He's drawing from biblical history. And he's even precipitating in some of the words that he uses. Some biblical history that will be communicated in, say, the book of Ezekiel, for instance. So yes, it's poetic. Yes, it's metaphoric. But it's drawing from historical realities of ways in which God has intervened in time and space. So we begin in Psalm 18, verse 7, where we read, Then the earth shook and trembled, The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. So this is how the initial answer to David's prayer is poetically described, right? Cried out in verse 6, and then what happens? Then the earth shook and trembled. And then he says, the foundation of the hills also quaked and were shaken. So God's intervention is associated with the created realm quaking. It's as though God's interposition is so majestic, so glorious, so powerful, that earth itself and the very foundations of the mountains rocked at His very presence as He swooped down, as it were, and everything began to shake. You get a little glimpse of that when the angel descends in Matthew 28. And when he descends, then an earthquake happens. 
And now we're talking about one who is infinitely stronger than an angel. And David cries because his enemies are assailing him. And then David says, it was like the earth shook and trembled. And the foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken. Now this kind of idea is communicated in other places in the scripture. In Psalm 104, verse 32, for instance, first half of the verse, it says, he looks on the earth, speaking of Yahweh, and it trembles. That's how holy and powerful he is. He looks upon the earth and it trembles before him. This kind of language is used in Nahum 1.5. The earth trembles at his presence. But again, as I noted earlier, it's the kind of thing that actually happened in history. This happened at Mount Sinai, for instance. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, for instance, when the Lord descended in fire upon Mount Sinai, the mountain quaked greatly. Not only did the mountain quake, the people quaked greatly as well. You essentially see that in uh, Exodus 19, verse uh, 16. And Moses quaked greatly too. You see that in Deuteronomy 9, verse 19. Now, for a moment here, well, David, I think, appears to be drawing from the imagery at Mount Sinai. I do think for us as New Testament Christians, especially those of us who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's a good moment for us to be reminded of what the writer of Hebrews tells the New Covenant Christian. He says, essentially, in Hebrews 12, 18, you have not come to Mount Sinai. But he goes on in verse 22 and he says, you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So you don't come to a place that represents the old covenant. You come to a place that represents the new. You don't come to a place where you have to tremble in some sort of servile kind of fear. You come to a place of infinite joy. You don't come to the mediator of the old covenant, Moses. You come to use language from verse 24 of Hebrews 12 to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You don't come to a mountain that can be shaken. Rather, as a Christian, you have received a kingdom and are in the process of receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. And if you look in Hebrews 12, there's still fear. But it's reverent fear. It's a godly fear that's associated with God's presence in Hebrews 12, 29. Well, back to Psalm 18. So David here is depicting his deliverance. And I want you to note this. And this is important to know with biblical metaphors. If you think just of shaking as connoting God's anger, you, you miss how it's used in other places. For instance, in the New Testament, when the apostles prayed in Acts 4, again, note the connection between praying and what follows. When they prayed in Acts 4, verse 31, then the room was shaken, and those who had been filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 were filled afresh in Acts chapter 4, 31, and they were empowered with boldness. So note, they prayed, the room was shaken, and it was a good kind of shaken. It was associated with the presence of the Holy Spirit filling them afresh and empowering them with boldness. That's not the kind of thing that's communicated here. We're told that the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of the hills quaked and were shaken. Why, per the text? Because he was angry. The word for angry can speak of burning. It can speak of an anger or wrath that is kindled like a fire. The anger connoted here is not towards David, but towards David's foes. And note, 
Even the earth, as it were, quakes at the presence of God's wrath towards those who are upon the earth. More about the implications of that later on. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, David continues and he says, Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. So nope, this is not the Leviathan, that tremendous and formidable sea creature of Job 41, though the language is remarkably similar. If you were to look at Job 41, verses 20 and 21, you'd say, wow, it sounds a lot like Leviathan. Nope, this is not Leviathan. This is the one that makes Leviathan look like a goldfish. This is the one who is infinitely stronger than Leviathan. It is worth noting, not to overdo the comparison between the two, that if man is described as being no match for the Leviathan whose breath kindles coals and fire. You can see that in Job 41 verse 21. How can man contend with God as he is depicted here? And the answer is, he can't. Which should make us all very thankful for the reconciliation that is found through faith in Christ Jesus that we could be reconciled to this God with whom we cannot contend. Now, it's not difficult to see what the imagery is uh, communicating here. Namely, I would say, burning anger, to use some language from Deuteronomy 29.20. When the text says, smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth, I think we are to imagine, A, the heat of God's anger issuing forth and smoke pouring forth, Note also, this might be connected with the imagery that's coming. A lot of cloud imagery that's coming. So it might be connoting anger in one respect, but also the the clouds that also connote anger. We'll get to that in a moment. I think the two are connected here. It's connoting anger, and it's connected with the imagery of dark clouds that are going to be described in the verses that follow. We are also to see, I would think, a kind of incinerating fire that devours everything in its path. Do you know part of the way that your God is described, He's not only described as light in whom there is no darkness. He's not only described as, described as love. God is love. He's not only described like that. He's also described as a consuming fire. A fire that devours everything in its path. Particularly as it relates to His wrath. If you look in Exodus chapter 15, verse 7, the burning wrath of God consumes the objects of wrath like stubble. Like stubble. Now look at the end of verse 8. When the text says, coals were kindled by it. Now two things here. It could be understood, as rendered in the NIV, as burning coals blazed out of it. So further reinforcing the kind of the incinerating fire that proceeds from him. It's one way of understanding the language here. Or, as Calvin notes, it can, quote, serve or serves to distinguish this dreadful fire from a flame which blazes for a moment and then is extinguished. This fire kindles coals. It's not just a fire that blazes for a moment and then it's gone. That's what Calvin is suggesting there. I do want us to know, as we probably already do, burning coals are emblematic They do connote and represent God's judgment. 
We saw in a previous psalm in our study through the psalms. In Psalm 11, verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Again, Psalm 11, verse 6. Likewise, fire often, though not necessarily always, when, when fire you know, fell, as it were, in the day of Pentecost, that wasn't connoting judgment. But fire oftentimes connotes and communicates judgment as well. Jesus spoke a parable about the king who sent his army, destroyed the murderers, and burned their city in Matthew 22, verse 7. When Christ is returning, he is depicted in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 as coming in flaming fire, a symbol of judgment oftentimes. I want you to note this. If God is a consuming fire, if God's wrath is truly like a fire that burns up what is before it, but at the same time cannot be extinguished, we ought to be reminded that the only way for the fire of God's wrath to be extinguished is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, not not, not to overdo this, but I, I want you to understand the imagery here. David is talking about God's deliverance for him. How God swooped in and helped him. But on the other side of David's deliverance was David's enemies. And they weren't only David's enemies. They were God's enemies. And they were on the receiving end of divine wrath temporally, which was a precursor to divine wrath eternally. And divine wrath can be likened to a fire, an incinerating fire that can never be quenched. You can see in the book of Revelation that kind of imagery. The smoke of the torment of such ones like the beast, for for example, will ascend forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. This is a fire that cannot be quenched apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God. Think how powerful the cross is. If there's nothing else in all the universe that could quench God's wrath, But one thing, how powerful is that one thing? How powerful is that sacrifice? How forgiven are your sins if the fire of God's wrath has been quenched by the shed blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it brings us to verse 9. In verse 9 we read, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under His feet. Now, The imagery that's used here, I think, is reinforced in verse 11. We'll see more of that when we get to verse 11. But consider if you've ever been outside, and then all of a sudden you were, you know, outside, it was a nice day, and all of a sudden you saw a storm just show up seemingly out of nowhere. And you know what that's like. All of a sudden, blue skies give way to clouds. And those clouds that come, they can be dark, and there's a sense of foreboding when you see those clouds, and those clouds appear to hang lower than other clouds, and in fact, they do. The kind of clouds that bring rain the way that they do are clouds that um, hang within the lower part, sometimes in the middle part of the atmosphere. And that might be some of the imagery that's used here. Because when he, David says, he bowed the heavens also, two good possibilities of what David is communicating here. One, God brought the heavens low as it were. He bowed the heavens in the sense, one possibility, of bringing them low. So it's as though the storm clouds, the clouds that would represent his presence, and in this case his divine anger, all of a sudden came low. Drawing from storm clouds to some degree that we see that come low. He may also be describing here God ripping apart the heavens, as it were. He bowed the heavens in the sense of kind of ripping the heavens apart, and he makes his entrance into time and space as we know it. Now remember, 
This is poetic imagery. When it says here, look at the text, when it says he bowed the heavens also and came down, you are not to think of God vacating one location and inhabiting another. It's not the way it works with divine omnipresence. God is fully present everywhere. He's not only omnipresent, His presence is fully present in the sense that He's everywhere, but He is also fully present. Ubiquicent is the word often used to connote that. But God does at times choose certain places in which He will manifest His presence in a special way as we see throughout the Old Testament. The omnipresent God manifests His glorious presence wherever He wills and wishes. Now furthermore, the imagery that's used here again connotes divine intervention. It also connotes divine vengeance. In another place, David prayed along these lines, Part your heavens, Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Psalm 144, verse 5. You can look at Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 5, and you'll see similar language as well. Now, I want you to think of what this communicates for the enemies of God. Again, we'll talk more about what this says about David and the people of God a little bit later, but think of what this says for the enemies of God. These people, likely, who had pursued David for so long, and David was on the run, he was on the run from Saul for so long, for a time he was on the run from Absalom, Doubtless, there were foreign nations that thought that they would win the battle against him when he became king of Israel. And they probably thought that they had, at least some of them at some point, that they had the gods, as it were, smiling upon them. They probably thought behind their smiling providence, at least as they perceived it, was a smiling face of a deity or deities that were in charge. But then all of a sudden, as depicted here, it was as though the storm clouds came. And the reality was set before them. You see, their smiling providence hid a righteously indignant face. See, behind what they perceived to be, well, it's going good for us. David's on the run. Maybe we are the chosen of God. Maybe David is in the wrong. See, their smiling providence hid, as as it were, a righteously indignant face. The enemies of David, who were the enemies of God in this context, you could say that they were sinners in the hands of an angry God. But David was a sinner and also a saint made holy through grace by faith who was in the hands of a sovereign God. That's who David was. And I think it reminds us of the difference that saving faith makes. To apply it to us as New Testament Christians, we do well to remember that without Christ, we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. A justifiably, righteously, Angry God. So the storm clouds begin to, as it were, um, cover the proverbial sky. And in verse 10 we read, And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. Now in this verse we have the opportunity to study not only theology, but angelology. And let me start here. When you see the word cherub, please... Do not think of those little toddler-looking things with wings, right? Those chubby faces of those little toddler-like babies who have wings, and sometimes they're depicted with bows and arrows. It's not the kind of cherubs that's being described here. That's not biblical, by the way. So if you wonder, if you ever see those, I'm like, I wonder if there's something in the Bible about that. Let me tell you, there's not. 
Okay? When you see a cherub or a cherubim or cherubim, however you want to say that word, when you see that, don't think of them. No matter how often you may see them in home goods or anywhere else, that's not communicating the biblical imagery here. The Renaissance art and wherever else they're depicted and whatever they do to help people fall in love in Roman mythology and so on is not connoting what the scripture teaches. They are not related to biblical angels. So how can we begin to understand? Because I think, this is, this is my, my opinion here, I think if you're going to understand Psalm 18 verse 10 well, or at least as well as we can say for this moment, we would do well to understand what a cherub is, who the cherubim or cherubim, are. We're first introduced to them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Note them. And I say im, because im is the plural ending in the Hebrew for uh, the cherub, and it doesn't sound like cherub, but nonetheless, you get cherubim, cherubim, and it's plural there. You remember them in Genesis 3, 24. They were placed at the east side of the Garden of Eden to prohibit entry into the garden and to guard the tree of life after man had been driven from the garden. Which note, by the way, was both an act of judgment and an act of mercy. It wouldn't have been a good thing for fallen man to partake of the tree of life in a fallen state. But thanks be to God that, per the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation, to the one who overcomes, they will have access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we're first introduced to the cherubim there. You might recall also that upon the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim that were carefully crafted, and they were depicted as covering the mercy seat. We see that in Exodus 25, verses 17 through 18, and other places as well. Which is why you'll see oftentimes Yahweh described, Yahweh of hosts. That's another way of describing Yahweh of armies. And when you think of Yahweh of armies, most immediately you're thinking of angel armies. You could apply it in the Old Covenant context to the armies of Israel. But you'll often see Yahweh of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Dwells between the cherubim. It appears, at least I think, when you look in Ezekiel 28, that Satan was originally a covering or guarding cherub. You see that essentially in Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 16. I think that when God is prophetically speaking through Ezekiel to the king of Tyre, he is at the same time speaking past the king of Tyre to the one who is in the Garden of Eden, to the anointed cherub, to Satan. So I would say it appears that Satan was once identified as that cherub. The angels who are identified in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation as guarding the gates of the new Jerusalem may be, they may be cherubim because of the guarding nature of what they were called to do and tasked with. You see them in uh, Revelation 21.12. The four living creatures, not the ones of Revelation 4, but the four living creatures of Ezekiel 1 are identified as cherubim later on in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 10. And there are differences between the four living creatures in Revelation 4, for those of you who are familiar with the four living creatures of Ezekiel. Listen to some of the description. Ezekiel's having a vision, and doubtless there are figurative dynamics to what he is describing, and at least metaphoric connotations. These angelic beings depicted in Ezekiel's vision are described as having the likeness of a man. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5. You go on, you'll see references to faces, you'll see references to hands and straight legs and feet. So they're described as having the likeness of a man. 
But interestingly and mysteriously, they're also depicted in Ezekiel 1 as having four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Now, some possibilities for why that may be. Perhaps these figuratively represent different aspects of these angelic beings. Some commentators have noted that it could represent intelligence, the man face, and lion maybe representing um, power, ox representing service, and an eagle representing um, kind of, again, the highest order of different groups of creatures. Um, the eagle representing, I should say, swiftness. And these could be representing the highest order of created creatures. So it could be connoting in some sense the majesty of these created beings. A little bit more about the imagery that's used here. They are described as having four wings, which in itself is just mysterious to us to think of these angelic beings having four wings. You say, why do they have four wings? Well, with two, they're covering themselves. And with two, they're apparently flying. And they fly with such speed, we're told that when they move, Ezekiel says this later on. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 5, he says that the sounds of the wings of the cherubim were like the voice of the Almighty when he speaks. You go on a little bit more in Ezekiel 1, you see that their legs were straight, like that of a man. The soles of their feet were like calves' feet. To quote one commentator, that could connote firmness and constancy. They sparkled like burnished bronze at the end of verse 7 perhaps connoting a kind of glory and brilliance from being in the presence of God, though there could be other dynamics to that as well. Under their wings, they had the hands of a man. Verse 8, perhaps for action or for some capable skill or service that they were to render, at least connoting that. The wings of the cherubim, as I noted, uh, were four, but at least two of them touched one another, even as they are depicted as doing in the Ark of the Covenant, or as they were placed over the Ark of the Covenant. The two other wings covered their bodies. Interestingly, when you look at that chariot, as it were, God's chariot throne, which seems to be what they essentially are. More about that in a moment. You see that from the text. They didn't need to turn right or left. It's as though they just went in whatever direction they needed to go, having four faces looking in any direction, speaking to the readiness that they had to accomplish the divine service. It could also speak to uh, how they were so compelled by God that they would move in perfect conformity with His will. And you say, well, wh- why are you going through all this? Well, why are you describing the cherubim in this kind of way? Because I want you to understand who they are. Because if you just read Psalm 1810 and you say, the cherub, he, he rode upon a cherub. And you might just think in your mind, I'm not sure what that means, but I've seen things that are called cherub in home goods. No, I don't want you to have that. I want you to have the biblical imagery right before your eyes. And then what is that meant to connote? I think if you see how glorious these beings are, how majestic they are, then it should help you appreciate the infinitely more glorious one, the infinitely more majestic one that they serve. A couple other notes here. When the text says cherub, that's singular. I do think that as rendered in the Septuagint and other versions, I think plural is more likely because of the biblical imagery connected with multiple cherubs. Um, second, to use language from Alan Ross, per the language in this psalm, while it appears that the clouds were holding Yahweh up as he swooped in, what this is depicting, per Psalm 18.10, is that it was the angelic chariot that was holding him up. In 1 Chronicles 28.18, there's a direct connection 
between the cherubim and God's chariot. So very interesting. We are told there of the gold that was used for the construction of, quote, the chariot. That is the gold cherubim that spread their wings and overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. That connection, if you look in Ezekiel 10, is explicitly seen as well. So what am I saying here? If these beings, these majestic beings, constitute in some sense God's chariot, we ought to be reminded of the infinite majesty of the God of angel armies. That when He swooped in, David is saying, when He swooped in, it's as though the heavens were just torn open, as it were, or brought low. And then all of a sudden, God swooped in, not only upon dark clouds, but on the chariot of the cherubim. He swooped in. The following expression, He flew upon the wings of the wind, likely speaks to the swift nature of His movement. There may also be a polemic dynamic here where David is saying something about what God had done, metaphorically, but yet at the same time taking a shot at the false gods of Canaanite superstition and religion. For example, the false god Baal was thought to be the rider of the cloud. But here we're told that it was Yahweh who flew upon the wings of the wind. The false god was no match for the true god. And the supposed rider of the cloud fell to the one who truly rides upon the wings of the cloud. Look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says, He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. So here we're back to cloud imagery. But again, it's based upon reality. When you look at Mount Sinai and the Lord's descent upon Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, you can see that this is drawn from factual history. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai, His presence was accompanied by a thick cloud. Exodus 19, verse 16. One of the reasons for that, if you say, well, why did God do that? Well, one of the reasons for that is as He told Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. You see that in Exodus 19, verse 9 the people would acknowledge that Moses was indeed the mediator of the Old Covenant, and God's descent in the cloud was part of the reason for that. Moses was once described as approaching the thick darkness where God was. Exodus 20, verse 21. When the glory of God filled the temple, when Solomon had dedicated the temple, in 1 Kings 18, verse 11, Solomon spoke saying that Yahweh said He would dwell in the dark cloud. Psalm 97 verse 2 says that clouds and darkness surround him. Now again, if you're understanding the attributes of God rightly, you know that the darkness here does not connote evil. Right? God is light, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, in whom there is no darkness. So this is not meant to connote evil. But when you see the darkness that surrounds God at, say, for instance, Sinai, it's meant to connote, I would argue, in some degree, the sublimeness, the solemnity, and the mysterious nature that accompanies God's presence. And if you were to say, what does that darkness that surrounded God in this psalm connote? I would say again, sticking with what we've seen, it connotes the terrifying nature of standing before the God who opposes all who threaten and harm His people. 
But there are more dynamics to be appreciated. When the text says, he made darkness his secret place, it connotes that how his presence, though in ways was manifested, was at the same time concealed. Now maybe some of you are thinking this. Wait a minute. I thought God wraps himself in light. And you're right. He does. He is light in whom there's no darkness. But in Psalm 104, verse 2, we're told that He wraps Himself in light. In 1 Timothy 6.16, we know that God dwells in unapproachable light. But think of the necessity of the God of heaven wrapping Himself in darkness because of His resplendent light. Take, for instance, Moses. When Moses was in the presence of God, what did he have to do when he came down from the mount and from the presence of God? He had to have a veil cover his face because the glory that was shining forth from his face was so bright. And that, that was just Moses beholding in some limited way the glory of God, being in His glorious presence. Can you imagine fallen man being in the presence of God's light and glory without it being held back, without it being covered, as it were, by darkness? If there was no cloud at Sinai to hold back the resplendent light of God, all of the people that were there would just have been devoured, as it were, by God's great glory. So the thick darkness, I think, is a kind of grace because mortal men cannot bear the undiluted and unmediated glory of God's presence in their fallen bodies. Which makes you all the more thankful for that glorified body that we will receive. Yet alone, the fact that to be absent from the body and to be present in the presence of the Lord is to be a spirit of a just man or a woman made perfect to behold such glory without the fear of death in our mortal fallen frame. Wow. The imagery is further unpacked by the lines that follow. His canopy, or his tent, you could render it that way, around him was dark waters. We're like, what does that mean? It's probably, as Alec Moitier notes, probably speaking of dark rain clouds. Again, I told you, we're back to that cloud imagery. And thick clouds of the skies, speaking of the formation of dense clouds. Again, within the context of this psalm, I would argue this is speaking of judgment. Remember, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, in Joel chapter 2, verse 2, the day of the Lord is described as a day of clouds and thick darkness. So you could say it was showing up in miniature for the foes of David. So when the darkness all of a sudden in this metaphoric imagery all of a sudden appeared, it's as though it was the day of the Lord for these foes of God and foes of David in miniature. Now, I want to apply this in a few ways. I want to apply the text that we've seen so far in this verse um, to a gospel call, and then I want to encourage the body of Christ with, I think, some of what we are to take away from this song. First, if you are not for and in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then there are dark clouds in your forecast. The Son of Man who will come on the clouds of heaven will not bring you to be forever with Him. Rather, there awaits an outer darkness that is connected with His ever-present wrath and at the same time a sense of the absence of the omnipresent God. 
So if you haven't looked to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of sins, there are dark clouds ahead. Darker than you could even imagine. You would have to do with the God who is depicted here in this text as He is depicted in this text. To believe the Gospel and to look upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins is to assure for yourself by the grace of God something much better than clear skies. So if you don't want to have dark clouds in the forecast, you get something much better than clear skies. You get the light and the glory of God's presence to enjoy forever and ever. You get a resurrection that awaits you with a body that is fitted to behold His resplendent face for all of eternity. So please know, the problem is not only for, say, the foes of David around this time. The problem, standing before a holy God as an unrepentant sinner, is for anyone in all times who does not come to a saving faith in the living God and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if you have not come to that place, may by the grace of God your forecast be changed. May you pass from a moment from death into life by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for your sins and rose from the grave. He is the only one who could extinguish the wrath of God. For those who have come to that place, after you've done that and you've come to saving faith in Christ, you can do what Psalm 68 verse 4 says. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds by His name, Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh, and rejoice before Him. And if you're like, well, what do I do? I've come to Christ. What do I do? Well, part of what you do is you praise Him. Part of what you do is you rejoice before Him. You take the imagery that's connoted here and you say, my God is awesome. My God is majestic. And then you say this, if you're applying the psalm rightly, look at how He cares for His people. See, if you just see the foreboding nature of God's judgment upon those who are enemies of His Son... His anointed son in one sense here, David, ultimately his anointed son, Jesus Christ. If you just see that, you're missing the picture. It's like when Jesus spoke about those who are stumbling blocks for any of the little ones that believe in him. He said it'd be better for such ones to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the sea. Now, if you just see the fearful nature of that, you're missing the total picture of that. Because it's not only meant to communicate the ferocity of God's judgment, it's meant to connote the care that He has for His people. He cares for His people that much that when you become a stumbling block for one of His little ones, it's as though you you should be saying, it'd be better off for me to have a millstone tied around my neck because God cares for them so much. He loves them so much. And when you read this psalm, you're meant to see how He cares for His people represented here by David. And aren't you thankful that this didn't stay in just 2 Samuel 22? It's not simply autobiographical. It was meant to be communal, as it were, for the people of God to sing corporately. Because this isn't just David's story. This is the story for the people of God. And when you are truly in Christ and you call out to the living God, you may not know how God is going to answer. But this psalm is a reminder to you that He is not indifferent to your cries. And who knows what He may do when you call out to Him. I quoted last week John Flavel, who said, The prayer of a single saint is sometimes followed with wonderful effects. And in my opinion, at least what comes to the forefront of my mind right now, I can't think of a better way to inspire the people of God to pray. Look what happened when David prayed. And you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen. But you could be assured 
that God's intervention and God's help in some way, shape, or form will come to His people who prayed and who pray. Well, there's more to be seen. Well, let us go to our God in prayer. Father, we thank You for how glorious You are and even the ways in which the created realm has, and many times in history, bowed before You, as it were, quaked at Your presence. The way in which You've intervened in time and space as we know it to reveal just glimpses of Your immeasurable greatness and glory. Thank You, Heavenly Father, that through Christ we need not fear You, but I thank You that You are our Father. I thank You when we think about the unseen realm, whether it's angelic beings like the cherubim, or whether it's powers and principalities who would be arrayed against Your people. We need not fear. Thank You that You have made Your angels, um, Your ministers, and they are sent to those who will inherit salvation. And we thank You, Lord, that not only there awaits us in the kingdom to come, not only rejoicing in the presence of saints, but angels as well, some of whom we got to consider today. And Father, we pray that You would find us exalting You, bowing before such holy greatness. May there be a growing sense of holy reverence in our hearts. So that even as we look at this world that can be shaken, we know that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And even as we see Your wrath, Lord, revealed from heaven against all manner of ungodliness in one way or another in the here and now, we do not have to fear that wrath or the wrath to come because You have extinguished it via the person and work of Your Son. So Father, with all that being said, I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would mobilize us afresh to pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, may You mobilize us to pray. And may we look to You, whether it's for help in our own lives, whether it's for help and strength in the body of Christ, whether it's for provision or salvation or Your intervention in one way or another. Heavenly Father, may You find us praying And may you find us trusting that according to your sovereign will and your sovereign timing, there will be wonderful effects via the prayers that are prayed according to your will and by your grace. Thank you, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.